0: mind versus machine in the race to build computers that can think like humans the proving ground is the turing test an annual battle between the world's most advanced artificial intelligence programs and ordinary people the objective to find out whether a computer can act more human than a person in his own quest to beat the machines the author discovers that the march of technology isn't just changing how we live it's raising new questions about what it means to be human by Brian Christensen, first published in The Atlantic, March 2011. Brighton, England, September 2009. I wake up in a hotel room 5,000 miles from my home in Seattle. After breakfast, I step out into the salty air and walk the coastline of the country that invented my language, though I find I can't understand a good portion of the signs I pass on my way. Let agreed, one says prominently in large print, and it means nothing to me. I pause and stare dumbly at the sea for a moment, parsing and reparsing the sign. Normally, these kinds of linguistic curiosities and cultural gaps intrigue me. Today, though, they are mostly a cause for concern. In two hours, I will sit down at a computer and have a series of five-minute instant message chats with several strangers. At the other end of these chats will be a psychologist, a linguist, a computer scientist, and the host of a popular British technology show. Together they form a judging panel, evaluating my ability to do one of the strangest things I've ever been asked to do. I must convince them that I'm human. Fortunately, I am human. Unfortunately, it's not clear how much that will help. The Turing Test Each year for the past two decades, the artificial intelligence community has convened for the field's most anticipated and controversial event, a meeting to confer the Loebner Prize on the winner of a competition called the Turing Test. The test is named for the British mathematician Alan Turing, one of the founders of computer science, who in 1950 attempted to answer one of the field's earliest questions, can machines think? That is, would it ever be possible to construct a computer so sophisticated that it could actually be said to be thinking, to be intelligent, to have a mind? And if indeed there were, someday, such a machine, how would we know? Instead of debating this question on purely theoretical grounds, Turing proposed an experiment. Several judges each posed questions via computer terminal to several pairs of unseen correspondents. One a human confederate, the other a computer program, and attempt to discern which is which. The dialogue can range from small talk to trivia questions, from celebrity gossip to heavy-duty philosophy, the whole gamut of human conversation. Turing predicted that by the year 2000, computers would be able to fool 30% of human judges after five minutes of conversation, and that as a result, one would be able to speak of machines thinking without expecting to be contradicted. Turing's prediction has not come to pass, however. At the 2008 contest, the top-scoring computer program missed that mark by just a single vote. When I read the news, I realized instantly that the 2009 test in Brighton could be the decisive one. I never attended the event, but I felt I had to go, and not just as a spectator, but as part of the human defense. A steely voice had risen up inside me, seemingly out of nowhere. Not on my watch. I determined to be a confederate. The thought of going head-to-head, head-to-motherboard, against some of the world's top A.I. programs, filled me with a romantic notion that, as a Confederate, I would be defending the human race, a la Gary Kasparov's chess match against Deep Blue. During the competition, each of four judges will type a conversation with one of us for five minutes, then the other, and then we'll have ten minutes to reflect and decide which one is the human. Judges will also rank all the contestants. This is used in part as a tie-breaking measure. The computer program receiving the most votes and highest ranking from the judges, regardless of whether it passes the Turing test by fooling 30% of them, is awarded the title of the most human computer. It is this title that the research teams are all gunning for, the one with the cash prize, usually $3,000, the one with which most everyone involved in the contest is principally concerned. But there is also, intriguingly, another title, one given to the Confederate who is most convincing, the Most Human Human Award. One of the first winners in 1994 was the journalist and science fiction writer Charles Platt. How did he do it? By being moody, irritable, and obnoxious, as he explained in Wired magazine, which strikes me as not only hilarious and bleak, but in some deeper sense, a call to arms, How, in fact, do we be the most human we can be, not only under the constraints of the test, but in life? The Importance of Being Yourself Since 1991, the Turing Test has been administered at the so-called Loebner Prize Competition, an event sponsored by a colorful figure, the former baron of plastic roll-up portable disco dance floors, Hugh Loebner. When asked his motives for orchestrating this annual Turing Test, Loebner cites laziness, of all things. His utopian future, apparently, is one in which unemployment rates are nearly 100%, and virtually all of human endeavor and industry is outsourced to intelligent machines. To learn how to become a Confederate, I sought out Loebner himself, who put me in touch with contest organizers, to whom I explained that I'm a nonfiction writer of science and philosophy, fascinated by the most human human award. Soon I was on the Confederate roster. I was briefed on the logistics of the competition, but not much else. There's not much more you need to know, really, I was told. You are human, so just be yourself. Just be yourself has become, in effect, the Confederate motto. But it seems to me like a somewhat naive overconfidence in human instincts. Or, at worst, like fixing the fight. Many of the AI programs we Confederates go up against are the result of decades of work. Then again, so are we. But the AI research teams have huge databases of test runs for their programs, and they've done statistical analysis on these archives. The programs know how to deftly guide the conversation away from their shortcomings and toward their strengths, know which conversational routes lead to deep exchange and which ones fizzle. The average off-the-street confederates' instincts, or judges for that matter, aren't likely to be so good. This is a strange and deeply interesting point amply proved by the perennial demand in our society for dating coaches in public speaking classes. The transcripts from the 2008 contest show the humans to be such wet blankets that the judges become downright apologetic for failing to provoke better conversation. I feel sorry for the humans behind the screen. I reckon they must be getting a bit bored talking about the weather, one writes. Another offers meekly, sorry for being so banal. Meanwhile, A computer appears to be charming the pants off one judge, who, in no time at all, is gushing LOLs and smiley-face emoticons. We can do better. Thus, my intention from the start was to thoroughly disobey the advice to just show up and be myself. I would spend months preparing to give it everything I had. Ordinarily, this notion wouldn't be odd at all, of course. We train and prepare for tennis competitions, spelling bees, standardized tests, and the like. But given that the turing test is meant to evaluate how human i am the implication seems to be that being human and being oneself is more about than simply showing up the sentence to understand why our human sense of self is so bound up with the history of computers it is important to realize that computers used to be human in the early 20th century Before a computer was one of the digital processing devices that permeate our 21st century lives, it was something else, a job description. From the mid-18th century onward, computers, many of them women, were on the payrolls of corporations, engineering firms, and universities, performing calculations and numerical analysis, sometimes with the use of a rudimentary calculator. These original human computers were behind the calculations for everything, From the first accurate prediction in 1757 for the return of Halley's Comet, early proof of Newton's theory of gravity, to the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos, where the physicist Richard Feynman oversaw a group of human computers. It's amazing to look back at some of the earliest papers on computer science and see the authors attempting to explain what exactly these new contraptions were. Turing's paper, for instance, describes the unheard of digital computer, by making analogies to a human computer the idea behind digital computers may be explained by saying that these machines are intended to carry out any operations which could be done by a human computer of course in the decades that followed we know that the quotation marks migrated and now it is digital computer that is not only the default term but the literal one in the mid-20th century a piece of cutting-edge mathematical gadgetry was said to be like a computer. In the 21st century, it is the human math whiz who is like a computer. It's an odd twist. We're like the thing that used to be like us. We imitate our old imitators in one of the strange reversals in the long saga of human uniqueness. Philosophers, psychologists, and scientists have been puzzling over the essential definition of human uniqueness since the beginning of recorded history. The Harvard psychologist, Dan Gilbert, says that every human must, at some point in his or her career, write a version of what he calls the sentence. Specifically, the sentence reads like this, The human being is the only animal that blank. The story of humans' sense of self is, you might say, the story of failed, debunked versions of the sentence. Except now, it's not just the animals we're worried about. We once thought humans were unique for using language, but this seems less certain each year. We once thought humans were unique for using tools, but this claim also erodes with ongoing animal behavior research. We once thought humans were unique for being able to do mathematics, and now we can barely imagine being able to do what our calculators can. We might ask ourselves, Is it appropriate to allow our definition of our own uniqueness to be, in some sense, reactive to the advancing front of technology? And why is it that we are so compelled to feel unique in the first place? Sometimes it seems, says Douglas Hofstadter, a Pulitzer Prize-winning cognitive scientist, as though each new step towards A.I., rather than producing something which everyone agrees is real intelligence, merely reveals what real intelligence is not. While at first this seems a consoling position, one that keeps our unique claim to thought intact, it does bear the uncomfortable appearance of a gradual retreat, like a medieval army withdrawing from the castle to the keep. But the retreat can't continue indefinitely. Consider, if everything we thought hinged on thinking turns out to not involve it, then what is thinking? it would seem to reduce to either an epiphenomenon, a kind of exhaust thrown off by the brain, or worse, an illusion. Where is the keep of our selfhood? The story of the 21st century will be, in part, the story of the drawing and redrawing of these battle lines, the story of Homo sapiens trying to stake a claim on shifting ground, flanked by beast and machine, pinned between meat and math is this retreat a good thing or a bad thing? For instance, does the fact that computers are so good at mathematics in some sense take away an arena of human activity? Or does it free us from having to do a non-human activity, liberating us into a more human life? The latter view seems to be more appealing, but less so when we begin to imagine a point in the future when the number of human activities left for us to be liberated has grown uncomfortably small what then? Alan Turing proposed his test as a way to measure technology's progress, but it just as easily lets us measure our own. The Oxford philosopher John Lucas says, for instance, that if we fail to prevent machines from passing the Turing test, it would be not because machines are so intelligent, but because humans, many of them at least, are so wooden. Beyond its use as a technological benchmark, The Turing test is, at bottom, about the act of communication. I see its deepest questions as practical ones. How do we connect meaningfully with each other, as meaningfully as possible, within the limits of language and time? How does empathy work? What is the process by which someone enters into our life and comes to mean something to us? These, to me, are the test's most central questions, and the most central questions of being human. Part of what's fascinating about studying the programs that have done well at the Turing Test is seeing how conversation can work in the total absence of emotional intimacy. A look at the transcripts of Turing Test's past is, frankly, a sobering tour of the various ways in which we demur. Lodge the question, lighten the mood, change the subject, distract, burn time. What shouldn't pass for real conversation at the Turing test probably shouldn't be allowed to pass for real conversation in everyday life, either. How to Talk Like a Human When the Turing test was first proposed in 1950, it was a hypothetical. Technology was nowhere near the point at which a practical test was possible. But as we know, it got there. The first conversational computer program to attract significant notice and attention was ELIZA. Written in 1964 and 1965 by Joseph Weizenbaum at MIT. Modeled after a Rogerian therapist, Eliza worked on a very simple principle extract keywords from the user's own language and pose their statements back to them. I am unhappy. Do you think coming here will help you not to be unhappy? If in doubt, it might fall back on some completely generic phrases, like, Please go on. This technique of fitting the user's statements into predefined patterns and responding with a prescribed phrasing of its own, called template matching, was Eliza's only capacity. A look at an Eliza transcript reveals how adeptly such an impoverished set of rules can, in the right context, pass at a glance for understanding. User. Men are all alike. Eliza. In what way? User. They're always bugging us about something or other. Eliza Can you think of a specific example? User Well, my boyfriend made me come here. Eliza Your boyfriend made you come here. User He says I'm depressed much of the time. Eliza I am sorry to hear you are depressed. User It's true. I'm unhappy. Eliza Do you think coming here will help you not to be unhappy? User, I need some help. That much seems certain. Eliza, what would it mean to you if you got some help? User, perhaps I could learn to get along with my mother. Eliza, tell me more about your family. The results were stunning. Many of the people who first talked with Liza were convinced that they were having a genuine human exchange. In some cases, even Weizenbaum's own insistence to the contrary was of no use. People asked to be left alone to talk in private, sometimes for hours, in return with reports of having had a meaningful therapeutic experience. Meanwhile, academics slept to conclude that Eliza represented a general solution to the problem of computer understanding of natural language. One of the strangest twists, to the eliza story however was the reaction of the medical community which decided weisenbaum had hit upon something both brilliant and useful the journal of nervous and mental disease for example said of eliza in 1966 several hundred patients in an hour could be handled by a computer system designed for this purpose the human therapist involved in the design and operation of this system would not be replaced but would become a much more efficient man the famed scientist Carl Sagan in 1975 concurred. I can imagine the development of a network of computer psychotherapeutic terminals, something like arrays of large telephone booths, in which, for a few dollars a session, we would be able to talk with an attentive, tested, and largely non-directive psychotherapist. As for Weizenbaum, appalled and horrified, he did something almost unheard of an about face on his entire career. He pulled the plug on the Eliza project, encouraged his own critics and became one of science's most outspoken opponents of AI research. But the genie was out of the bottle and there was no going back. The basic template-matching skeleton and approach of Eliza, has been reworked and implemented in some form or another in almost every chat program since, including the contenders at the 2009 Loebner Prize competition. The enthusiasm as well as the unease about these programs, has only grown. The Jerk as Genius The first Loebner Prize competition was held on November 8, 1991, at the Boston Computer Museum. In its first few years, the contest required each program and human confederate to choose a topic as a means of limiting the conversation. One of the confederates in 1991 was the Shakespearean expert Cynthia Clay, who was famously deemed a computer by three different judges after a conversation about the playwright. The consensus seemed to be, no one knows that much about Shakespeare. For this reason, Clay took her misclassifications as a compliment. The programmer Joseph Weintraub chose Whimsical Conversation for his PC Therapist three and went on to earn the very first Most Human Computer Award. As the program practiced it, whimsical conversation was not a topic at all, but a manner, a crucial distinction. Weintraub was able to play off a looseness in the contest rules, the natural behavior patterns of chatbots, and people's stereotypes about computers and humans all at once. Strategically, this was brilliant. By dutifully and scrupulously providing information in response to the questions asked, Clay demonstrated her knowledge and understanding but sometimes in a factual, encyclopedic way, commonly associated with computer systems. Here is a sample of Clay's conversation. Judge. What is your opinion on Shakespeare's plays? Confederate. That's pretty general. Would you be more specific? Otherwise, I'll just say I like them. The computer at the whimsical conversation terminal stood in stark contrast. Judge. It has been a long day. Now I think I'm ready for some fun. The weather isn't very pleasant today. Do you have any jokes that could lift the clouds? Computer. Everybody talks about the weather, but nobody seems to do much about it. Why do you need to tell me now? You think you're ready for some fun? Groan. Judge. What is the definition of whimsical conversation? Computer. You didn't say, well, anyway, I would imagine whimsical conversation is like a series of knight's moves in chess. Sort of zigzag, rather than following any non-particular line. Weintraub's program, like many that followed it, faked typos. Why do you ask? Was that a clever comment, or what? Are such questions much on your mind? Judge. I like the image of knights moving haphazardly across the chessboard. Does that mean there is no thought to whimsical conversation? Computer, I can swear you just said how you defined whimsical. How do you define whimsical? Were you always so sick, sick, sick? Why do you need to tell me you like the image of knights moving haphazardly across the chessboard? Really, I thought PC Therapist was human because it was weird and funny, in a normal sort of way, said one of the judges, a Harvard graduate student. Weintraub's program, shifting topics wildly and spouting non-sequiturs and canned one-liners, came off as zany, a jokester, a much more human personality type. At least I used to think so, before I learned how easy this was to mimic. As Richard Wallace, three-time winner of the Most Human Computer Award, 2000, 2001, and 2004, explains, Experience with Wallace's chatbot, Alice, indicates that the most casual conversation is stateless. That is, each reply depends only on the current query, without any knowledge of the history of the conversation required to formulate the reply. Many human conversations function in this way, and it behooves AI researchers to determine which types of conversation are stateless, with each remark depending only on the last, and try to create these very sorts of interactions. It is our job as Confederates, as humans, to resist them. One of the classic stateless conversation types is the kind of zany-free associative riffing that Weintraub's program, PC Therapist 3 employed. Another, it turns out, is verbal abuse. In May 1989, Mark Humphreys, a 21-year-old University College Dublin undergraduate, put online an Eliza-style program he'd written called Mgons, and left the building for the day. A user, screen name Someone, at Drake University in Iowa, tentatively sent the message, Finger, to Humphrey's account, an early Internet command that acted as a request for basic information about a user. To Someone's surprise, a response came back immediately. Cut this cryptic shit-speak in full sentences. This began an argument between someone and m that lasted almost an hour and a half. The best part was undoubtedly when someone said, You sound like a goddamn robot that repeats everything. Returning to the lab the next morning, Humphreys was stunned to find the log and felt a strange ambivalent emotion. His program might have just shown how to pass the Turing test, he thought, but the evidence was so profane that he was afraid to publish it. Humphrey's twist on the Eliza paradigm was to abandon the therapist's persona for that of an abusive jerk when it lacked any clear cue for what to say. M. fell back not on therapy cliches like how does that make you feel but on things like you are obviously an asshole or ah, type something interesting or shut up. It's a stroke of genius because as becomes painfully clear from reading the M. transcripts argument is stateless. That is anchored from all context, a kind of Markov chain of repost, repost, meta-repost, meta-meta-repost. Each remark after the first is only about the previous remark. If a program can induce us to sink to this level, of course it can pass the Turing test. Once again, the question of what types of human behavior computers can imitate shines light on how we conduct our own human lives. Verbal abuse is simply less complex than other forms of conversation. In fact, since reading the papers on M. Gons and transcripts of its conversations, I find myself much more able to constructively manage heated conversations. Aware of the stateless, knee-jerk character of the terse remark, I want to blurt out. I recognize that the remark has far more to do with a reflex action to the very last sentence of the conversation than with either the issue at hand or the person I am talking to. All of a sudden the absurdity and ridiculousness of this kind of escalation become quantitatively clear and contemptuously unwilling to act like a bot i steer myself toward a more stateful purpose better living through science beware of banality entering the brighton center i found my way to the loebner prize contest room i saw a row of seats where a handful of audience members had already gathered and up front what could only be the hot programmers worked hurriedly, plugging in tangles of wires and making the last furies of keystrokes. Before I could get too good a look at them, this year's test organizer, Philip Jackson, greeted me and led me behind a velvet curtain to the Confederate area. Out of view of the audience and the judges, the four of us Confederates sat around a rectangular table, each had a laptop set up for the test. Doug, a Canadian linguistics researcher, Dave, an American engineer working for Sandia National Laboratories, Olga, a speech research graduate student from South Africa, and me. As we introduced ourselves, we could hear the judges and audience members slowly filing in, but couldn't see them around the curtain. A man zoomed by in a green floral shirt, talking a mile a minute and devouring finger sandwiches. Though I had never met him before, I knew instantly he could be only one person, Hugh Loebner, Everything was in place, he told us, between bites, and the first round of the test would start momentarily. We four Confederates grew quiet, staring at the blinking cursors on our laptops. My hands were poised over the keyboard, like a nervous gunfighter's over his holsters. The cursor blinking, I unblinking. Then at once, letters and words began to materialize. "'Hi, how are you doing?' The Turing test had begun. I had learned from reading past Loebner Prize transcripts that judges come in two types the small talkers and the interrogators. The latter go straight in with word problems, spatial reasoning questions, and deliberate misspellings. They lay down a verbal obstacle course, and you have to run it. This type of conversation is extraordinarily hard for programmers to prepare against, because anything goes. And this is why turing had language and conversation in mind as his test because they are really a test of everything the downside to the give him the third degree approach is that it doesn't leave much room to express yourself personality wise the small talk approach has the advantage of making it easier to get a sense of who a person is if you are indeed talking to a person and this style of conversation comes more naturally to layperson judges for one reason or another Small talk has been explicitly and implicitly encouraged among Loebner Prize judges. It's come to be known as the stranger-on-a-plane paradigm. The downside is that these conversations are, in some sense, uniform, familiar in a way that allows a programmer to anticipate a number of the questions. I started typing back. Hey there. I'm good, excited to actually be typing. How are you? I could imagine the whole lackluster conversation spread out before me. Good. Where are you from? Seattle. How about yourself? London. Four minutes and forty-three seconds left. My fingers tapped and fluttered anxiously. I could just feel the clock grinding away while we lingered over the pleasantries. I felt this desperate urge to go off script. Cut the crap. Cut to the chase because i knew that the computers could do the small talk thing which played directly into their preparation as the generic civilities stretched forebodingly out before me i realized that this uh, i realized that this very kind of conversational boilerplate was the enemy every bit as much as the bots how i was thinking as i typed another unassuming pleasantry do i get an obviously human connection to happen taking turns Part of what I needed to figure out was how to exploit the Loebner Prize's unusual live-typing medium. The protocol being used was unlike emails, text messages, and standard instant messaging systems in a very crucial way. It transmitted our typing keystrokes by keystroke. The judge and I were watching each other type, typos and backspacing and all. I remember some Internet chat programs back in the 90s trying out this character-at-a-time approach. But people, for the most part, rejected it. It was too invasive, was the feeling. What people like about writing is the time and space to compose and edit a message before sharing it with the other person. The advantage of the character-at-a-time transmission, though, is that it approaches much more closely the condition of speech with its fluidity of turn-taking and its choppy grammar. What's lost in eloquence is made up for in agility. It also, then, lets us see typing's negative space, hesitation. In a chat conversation where text is transmitted with every carriage return, only egregiously long pauses are taken in part to be the interaction. With more fluid and immediate feedback, silence acquires meaning. Failing to quickly answer a question in a face-to-face conversation, for instance, is tantamount in many cases to answering it. I recall asking a friend of mine how things were going with the woman he'd started seeing. The um and the tiny pause in which he searched for the right words made it clear they were having problems. So what did the Loebner Prize's unusual and recently implemented protocols enable and disable, compared with the standard walkie-talkie, turn-taking style? Long missives weren't going to work as they had in previous years, when programs were able to steamroll the judges by eating up the clock in delivering ridiculously prolix answers. If two parties are taking strict turns under time pressure, they are putting themselves at the mercy of the length of the other's turn. Here, for instance, is one program's conversation transcript from 1996. Computer. How about telling me a joke? Judge. No. Computer. Here's my favorite joke. A dog limps into a bar with a bloody bandage on his foot. He's wearing a ten-gallon hat, six-shooters in his holsters and chaps. He growled, I'm looking for the man that shot my paw. The joke is not funny, the judge writes, giving the program an opening to tell another one, which it does. A knotty, worn-out old string walks into a bar. Meanwhile, three full minutes have elapsed. If a computer or Confederate started rambling on too long under the new live-typing protocols, the judge could and would just cut it off. And so another piece of my Confederate strategy fell into place. I would treat the Turing test's strange and unfamiliar textual medium more like spoken English and less like the written language. I would attempt to disrupt the turn-taking, wait-and-parse pattern that computers understand and create a single-flowing duet of verbal behavior, Emphasizing timing. If computers understand little about verbal harmony, they understand even less about rhythm. If nothing was happening on my screen, whether or not it was my turn, I'd elaborate a little on my answer, or add a parenthetical, or throw a question back at the judge, just as we offer and/or fill audible silence when we talk out loud. If the judge took too long considering the next question, I'd keep talking. I would be the one, unlike the bots, with something to prove. If I knew what the judge was about to write, I'd spare him the keystrokes and jump in. There's a trade-off, of course, between the number of opportunities for serve and volley and the sophistication of the responses themselves. The former thrives with brevity, the latter with length. It seemed to me, though, that so much of the nuance or difficulty in conversation comes from understanding or misunderstanding a question and offering an appropriate or inappropriate response. Thus, it made sense to maximize the number of interchanges. Some judges, I discovered, would be startled or confused at this jumping of the gun, and I saw them pause, hesitate, yield, even start backspacing what they had half-written, other judges cottoned on immediately and leapt right in after me. In the first round of the 2009 test, Judge Shalom Lapin, a computational linguist at King's College, London, spoke with a computer program called CleverBot, and then with me. My strategy of verbosity was clearly in evidence. I made only 1,089 keystrokes in five minutes, 3.6 keystrokes a second, to CleverBot's 356, per second, and Lappin made 548 keystrokes, 1.8 per second, in my conversation, compared with 397 1.3 per second with Cleverbot. Not only did I say three times as much as my silicon adversary, but I engaged the judge more, to the tune of 38% more typing from Lappin. Reviewing the logs later, though, I looked for a way to quantify the fluidity of the human-to-human interactions against the rigidity of the human-to-machine ones. It occurred to me that you could count the changes, let's call them swaps, of the party who typed the latest keystroke. I did manage to type three times as much as Cleverbot, but the real story, as it turns out, is in the swaps. Lappin's conversation with Cleverbot had 33. His conversation with me had 492 almost 15 times as many. The Confederates' Gambit You don't converse with Google or with most computer systems. You depose them. There's a crucial difference. Interestingly, many Loebner Prize judges approach the Turing test as a kind of cross-examination. Strangely, a number of Confederates also seem to approach it with that dynamic in mind. One of the human-to-human conversations in 2008 Never manages to get out of that stiff question and response mode. Judge. Do you have a long drive? Confederate. Fairly long. Judge. So do I. Ah well, do you think you could have used public transport? Confederate. I could have. Judge. And why not? Confederate. I chose not to. Judge. That's fair. Do you think we have too many cars on the road or not enough today confederate it's not easy for me to say yawn but the computer in this pair is playful with the judge from the get-go judge hi computer amen to that judge quite the evangelist computer our father who art in cyberspace give us today our daily bandwidth judge Evangelist slash nerd, lol. So, how are things with you today? And with that, the program has practically sealed up the judge's confidence in its humanity with its second sentence. Note that the Confederate's stiff answers prompt more grilling and forced conversation. What's your opinion on such and such political topic? But with the computer, the judge, misled by the opening wisecracks into assuming it's the real person, remains utterly casual. How are things? This makes the contest easier for the computer and harder for the Confederate. It surprised me to see some Confederates being coy with their judges. Asked what kind of engineer he is, Dave, to my left, answered, A good one, Smiley. And Doug, to my right, responded to a question about what brought him to Brighton with, If I tell you, you'll know immediately that I'm human. Smiley wink. For my money, wit is very successful, but coyness is a double-edged sword. You show a sense of humor, but you jam the cogs of the conversation. Probably the most dangerous thing a Confederate can do in a Turing test is stall. It's suspect, as the guilty party would tend to be the one running out the clock, and it squanders your most precious resource, time. Humans in a Turing test are strangers, limited to a medium that is slow and has no vocal tonality and without much time. A five-second Turing test would be an easy win for the machines. The judges, barely able to even say hello, simply wouldn't be able to get enough data from their respondents to make any kind of judgment. A five-hour test would be an easy win for the humans. The Loebner Prize organizers have tried different time limits since the contest's inception but in recent years they've mostly adhered to Turing's original prescription of five minutes, around the point when conversation starts to get interesting. A big part of what I needed to do as a Confederate was simply to make as much engagement happen in those minutes as I physically and mentally could. Rather than adopt the terseness of a deponent, I offered the prolixity of a writer. In other words, I talked a lot. I stopped typing, only when to keep going would have seemed blatantly impolite or blatantly suspicious. The rest of the time my fingers were moving. I went out of my way to embody that maxim of, a bore is a man who, being asked, how are you, starts telling you how he is. Judge. Hi, how's things? Confederate. Hey there, things are good. A lot of waiting, but good to be back now and going along. How are you? When we'd finished and my judge was engaged in conversation with one of my computer counterparts, I strolled around the table seeing what my comrades were up to. Looking over at my fellow Confederate Dave's screen, I noticed his conversation began like he was on the receiving end of an interrogation, and he was answering in a kind of minimal staccato. Judge, are you from Brighton? Confederate, no, from the U.S. Judge, what are you doing in Brighton? Confederate, on business. Judge, how did you get involved with the competition? Confederate, I answered an email. Like a good deponent, he let the questioner do all the work. When I saw how stiff Dave was being, I confess I felt a certain confidence. I, in my role as the world's worst opponent, was perhaps in fairly good shape as far as the most human human award was concerned. This confidence lasted approximately 60 seconds or enough time for me to continue around the table and see what another fellow Confederate Doug and his judge had been saying. Judge. Hey, bro, I'm from T.O. Confederate. Cool. Leafs suck. Smiley. Wink. Judge. I'm just back from a sabbatical in the C.S. Department at U of T. Confederate. Nice. Judge. Judge. I remember when they were a great team. That carbon date me, huh? Confederate. Well, the Habs were a great team once, too. Sigh. Judge. Yeah, they suck, too. Confederate. I'm from Montreal, if you didn't gasp. Doug and his judge had just discovered that they were both Canadian. They let rip with abbreviations and nicknames and slang and local references. And then they started to talk about hockey. I was in trouble. Six months after the 2009 contest, a video appeared on YouTube of a man having a shockingly cogent conversation with a bot about Shakespeare's Hamlet. Some suspected it might herald a new age for chatbots and for AI. Others, including myself, were unimpressed. Sophisticated behavior doesn't necessarily indicate a mind. It might indicate just a memory, as Dolly so famously put it. The first man to compare the cheeks of a young woman to a rose was obviously a poet. The first to repeat it was possibly an idiot. For instance, Richard Wallace, the three-time Most Human Computer winner, recounts an AI urban legend in which a famous natural language researcher was embarrassed when it became apparent to his audience of Texas bankers that the robot was constantly responding to the next question he was about to ask. His demonstration of natural language understanding was in reality nothing but a simple script. The moral of the story, no demonstration is ever sufficient. Only interaction will do. In the 1997 contest, one judge gets taken for a ride by Catherine, waxing political and really engaging in the topical conversation she has been programmed to lead about the Clintons and Whitewater. In fact, everything is going swimmingly until the very end when the judge signs off. Judge. It looks like I've got to go, Catherine. It's been nice talking with you. Do you need water or something before the five-minute rounds? At which point the program erupts into gibberish. Computer. Okay, yes, on balance. Time to get off this one, I think, and onto something more down-to-earth. Judge. Like what? Computer. Almost certainly. Let's move on. I suppose it depends on where you're coming from. But as the song goes in My Fair Lady, why can't a woman be more like a man? Defeat from the Jaws of Victory We so often think of intelligence, of AI, in terms of sophistication or complexity of behavior. But in so many cases it's impossible to say much with certainty about the program itself, because any number of different pieces of software, of wildly varying levels of intelligence, could have produced that behavior. No, I think sophistication, complexity of behavior, is not it at all. For instance, you can't judge the intelligence of an orator by the eloquence of his prepared remarks. You must wait until the Q&A and see how he fields questions. The computation theorist Hava Siegelman once described intelligence as a kind of sensitivity to things. These Turing test programs that hold forth may produce interesting output but they're rigid and inflexible. They are, in other words, insensitive, occasionally fascinating talkers that cannot listen. As computing technology in the 21st century moves increasingly toward mobile devices, we've seen the 1990s explosive growth in processor speed taper off, and product development becomes less about raw computing horsepower than about the overall design of the product and its fluidity, reactivity, and ease of use. This fascinating shift in computer emphasis may be the cause, effect, or correlative of a healthier view of human intelligence, an understanding not so much that it is complex and powerful, per se, as that it is reactive, responsive, sensitive, nimble. Our computers, flawed mirrors as they are, have helped us see that about ourselves. The Most Human Human The Most Human Computer Award in 2009 goes to David Levy and his program, Do Much More. Levy, who also won in 97 with Catherine, is an intriguing guy. He was one of the first big early figures in the digital chess scene of the 70s and 80s and was one of the organizers of the Marion Tinsley Chinook Checkers matches that preceded the Kasparov Deep Blue Showdowns in the 90s. He is also the author of the recent nonfiction book, Love and Sex with Robots, to give you an idea of the sort of things that are on his mind when he's not competing for the Loebner Prize. Levy stands up to applause, accepts the award from Philip Jackson and Hugh Loebner, and makes a short speech about the importance of AI for a bright future and the importance of the Loebner Prize for AI. I know what's next on the agenda, and my stomach knots. I'm certain that Doug's gotten it. He and the judge were talking Canada 30 seconds into their conversation. Ridiculous Canadians and their ice hockey, I'm thinking. Then I'm thinking how ridiculous it is that I'm even allowing myself to get this worked up about some silly award. Then I'm thinking how ridiculous it is to fly 5,000 miles just to have a few minutes' worth of I Am conversations. Then I'm thinking how maybe it'll be great to be the runner-up. I can compete again in 2010 in Los Angeles with the home field cultural advantage and finally prove... And the results here show also the identification of the humans. Jackson announces, and from the ranking list, we can see that Confederate one, which is Brian Christian, was the most human, and he hands me the certificate for the most human human award. I didn't know how to feel exactly; it seems strange to treat the award as meaningless or trivial, but did winning really represent something about me as a person more than anything. I felt that, together, my fellow Confederates and I had avenged the mistakes of 2008 in dramatic fashion. That year, the twelve judges decided five times that computer programs were more human than Confederates. In three of those instances, the judge was fooled by a program named Elbot, which was the handiwork of a company called Artificial Solutions, one of many new businesses leveraging chatbot technology. One more deception, and Elbot would have tricked 33% of that year's dozen judges, surpassing Turing's 30% mark, and making history. After Elbot's victory at the Loebner Prize and the publicity that followed, the company seemingly decided to prioritize the Elbot's software more commercial applications. At any rate, it had not entered the 09 contest as the returning champion. In some ways, a closer fight would have been more dramatic. Between us, we Confederates hadn't permitted a single vote to go to the machine's way. Whereas 2008 was a nail-biter, 2009 was a rout. We think of science as unhaltable, indefatigable advance. But in the context of the Turing test, humans, dynamic as ever, don't allow for that kind of narrative. We don't provide the kind of benchmark that sits still. As for the prospects of AI, Some people imagine the future of computing as a kind of heaven. Rallying behind an idea called the singularity, people like Ray Kurzweil in The Singularity is Near and his cohort of believers envision a moment when we make smarter-than-us machines, which make machines smarter than themselves, and so on, and the whole thing accelerates exponentially toward a massive ultra-intelligence that we can barely fathom. Such a time will become, in their view, a kind of techno-rapture in which humans can upload their consciousness onto the Internet and get assumed, if not bodily, then at least mentally, into an eternal, imperishable afterlife in the world of electricity. Others imagine the future of computing as a kind of hell. Machines black out the sun, level our cities, seal us in hyperbaric chambers, and siphon our body heat forever. I'm no futurist. But i suppose if anything i prefer to think of the long-term future of ai as a kind of purgatory a place where the flawed but good-hearted go to be purified and tested and come out better on the other side who would have imagined that the computer's earliest achievements would be in the domain of logical analysis a capacity once held to be what made us most different from everything else on the planet that it could fly a plane and guide a missile before it could ride a bike that it could create plausible preludes in the style of Bach before it could make plausible small talk, that it could translate before it could paraphrase, that it could spin half discernible essays on postmodern theory before it could be shown a chair and say, as most toddlers can, chair? As computers have mastered rarefied domains once thought to be uniquely human, they simultaneously have failed to master the ground-floor basics of the human experience spatial orientation, object recognition, natural language, adaptive goal setting, and in doing so, have shown how unimpressive, computationally and otherwise, such minute-to-minute fundamentals truly are. We forget how impressive we are. Computers are reminding us. One of my best friends was a barista in high school. Over the course of a day, she would make countless subtle adjustments to the espresso being made to account for everything from the freshness of the beans to the temperature of the machine to the barometric pressure's effect on the steam volume. Meanwhile, manipulating the machine with an octopus's dexterity and bantering with all manner of customers on whatever topics came up. She then went to college and landed her first real job, rigidly procedural data entry. She thought longingly back to her barista days, when her job actually made demands of her intelligence. Perhaps the fetishization of analytical thinking and the concomitant denigration of the creatural, that is, animal, and bodily aspects of life are two things we do well to leave behind. Perhaps at last, in the beginnings of the age of A.I., we are starting to center ourselves again, after generations of living slightly to one side, the logical, left-hemisphere side. Add to this that humans' contempt for soulless animals Our unwillingness to think of ourselves as descended from our fellow beasts is now challenged on all fronts. Growing secularism and empiricism, growing appreciation for the cognitive and behavioral abilities of organisms other than ourselves, and, not coincidentally, the entrance onto the scene of an entity with considerably less soul than we sense in a common chimpanzee or bonobo. In this way, AI may even turn out to be a boon for animal rights. Indeed, it's entirely possible that we've seen the high watermark of our left hemisphere bias. I think the return of a more balanced view of the brain and mind and of human identity is a good thing, one that brings with it a challenging perspective on the sophistication of various tasks. It's my belief that only experiencing and understanding truly disembodied cognition, only seeing the coldness and deadness and disconnectedness of something that really does deal in pure abstraction divorced from sensory reality, can snap us out of it. Only this can bring us, quite literally, back to our senses. In a 2006 article about the Turing test, the Loebner Prize co-founder Robert Epstein writes, One thing is certain. Whereas the Confederates in the competition will never get any smarter, the computers will. I agree with the latter, and couldn't disagree more strongly with the former. When the world champion chess player Gary Kasparov defeated Deep Blue, rather convincingly, in their first encounter in 1996, he and IBM readily agreed to return the next year for a rematch. When Deep Blue beat Kasparov, rather less convincingly, in 1997, Kasparov proposed another match for 98, but IBM would have none of it. The company dismantled Deep Blue, which never played chess again. The apparent implication is that, because technological evolution seems to occur so much faster than biological evolution, measured in years rather than in millennia, once the Homo sapiens species is overtaken, it won't be able to catch up. Simply put, the Turing test, once passed, is passed forever. I don't buy it. Rather, IBM's odd obnoxiousness to get out of Dodge after the 97 match suggests a kind of insecurity on its part that I think proves my point. The fact is, the human race got to where it is by being the most adaptive, flexible, innovative, and quick-learning species on the planet. We're not going to take defeat lying down. No, I think that, while the first year the computers passed the Turing test will certainly be a historic one, it will not mark the end of the story. Indeed, the next year's Turing test will truly be the one to watch, the one where we humans knock to the canvas, must pull ourselves up, the one where we learn how to be better friends, artists, teachers, parents, lovers, the one where we come back more human than ever.